The technology likely to have the greatest impact on the next few decades has arrived. You can start building completely new concepts for payments that we've never thought of. Move the need for a financial intermediary to transact value. Bitcoin and the blockchain have an amazing future. This is going to transform society. Hello guys, welcome to another episode of our Industry Insights. Today we have Alan Salamoun from BC Vault. Uh, he works for Real Security. Uh, we've got him here today with us to explain some of the vulnerabilities that Ledger uncovered regarding some of the Trezor hardware wallets. I know some of you have been worried about this, so that's why we decided to do this podcast with Alan. He's a security expert. He's gonna explain how some of these security breaches can occur. What is the actual risk? Because one of the things I'm sure you guys have noticed is Okay, let's reveal these risks, but what is actually the risk? Are these like sophisticated hacks that only someone with specialized equipment can do? Or is this something your average Joe can do if he gets access to your device? So welcome, Alan. Hi there. Do you want to explain what happened? Why Ledger revealed these? Were they working together with Trezor or did they just decide, hey, we're just going to reveal this? I think it's quite unusual for one vendor to directly issue such a statement about the competitive product and directly attack uh, the other vendor because usually the bias toward uh, such reviews or such tests is completely wrong because you are just directly attacking your competition and obviously you're going to try to do best for you and worst for your competitor. So um, we can only guess why Ledger took this approach. I think the crypto wallet market is uh, somehow in a stall for the last year, maybe, because uh, all the craze about crypto uh, somehow went down. And obviously, some vendors need sales. I would say that's the driver behind it. I see your point. I see your point. So... It wasn't the best practice, let's say, from Ledger's respect. So let's get into the actual breaches. Do you want, let's go uh, chronologically. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a list here, just not to forget anything. So the first one actually mentioned was the supply, supply chain attack. That's something that uh, is valid for any kind of electronic device out there, including your laptop and including your phone. Going to the point where somebody might sneak specific uh, code into the chips themselves before you get them, yes, that might be possible in 0.1% probably if you deal with uh, reputable vendors, if you buy your components directly by uh, big reputable warehouses or vendors directly, then you don't have to be scared about it. But the thing is that the supply chain attack actually goes more toward the user because the user can make a mistake buying a crypto wallet, for example, from eBay. So in that case, that's not a problem of Ledger, it's not a problem of Trezor, it's not a problem of BC Vault, it's a problem of user acknowledging the risk of buying the device from somewhere else. There's additional factor to it, uh, which actually Ledger mentioned. Uh, there are like completely cloned Trezor devices from China. This is only possible because Trezor has open source software. So actually, if you make the hardware, you take open source software, install it on the device, and ship it. 
and it's gonna act exactly the same as the real thing. So you see, open source can have the bad side also. And this is one of the reasons you have to be careful with it. So I think supply chain attack on the user side, yes, possible. So take care where you buy your crypto wallets and buy, the, buy them directly or from reputable dealers. But on the vendor producer side, I mean, that's not really feasible. Okay, so small risk. If you know where you're buying from, supply chain attack is not a minuscule. Yeah, and it's the same for everybody. I mean, it doesn't matter which kind of product, which kind of vendor, it's the same risk uh, level. It, it's exactly the same. So issue number two, software crappy attack. What, what was the ledger going on about that? I think the problem was that when both Ledger and Trezor somehow did the initial programming of crypto wallets. That was like five years ago, four years ago, right? They didn't really start from the security side. And there's a lot of stuff that was just plain old uh, programmed, let's say it. And there were a couple of issues there that were exploitable. For example... Um, there was kind of a issue where Ledger, I think, store uh, crypto wallet addresses on your PC. So if you did change that file, the address did actually change and somebody could, with change of the file, change, obviously, your addresses of your wallet. So you would be sending money to wrong wallets uh, and that kind of stuff. So this does happen. And with uh, Trezor, again, they are open source. So you have to think like that. You expose everything. You expose the complete source. You expose whatever you did, good job, bad job, everything. And this is really, as I already mentioned, it's a two-sided sword. Because first of all, if there are some obvious mistakes, somebody is gonna fix them. So that's a good side. That's a very good side from open source community. You get like upgrades for free, let's say it. But on the other side, a black hat can actually look for every single small exploit that he would not even be aware of if he would, if he would not look into the source code. And this is exactly something that happened in this case. So um, they checked the code, they found some problems, and they found them because they were checking the code itself. So... Uh, once a ledger did know Trezor about the issue, they fixed it. So that's that, that's a nice way of cooperation between two competitors where actually they did let them know in front that, look, guys, you have two issues, please, that can be exploited. But then again, those issues were not remotely exploitable. So it, it's not like uh, somebody sitting in... Um, other part of the world could actually exploit that against your device. So they would actually have to have physical access to the device itself for that to happen. Yeah, you have to have access to the device itself actually to exploit that. Because uh, obviously, whatever you do with any crypto wallet, it, it's the main idea. You have to press a button to confirm it. So you cannot execute any transaction because without, sorry, physical um, touch of the device, let's put it like that. So basically, if someone doesn't have physical access to the device, again, it's a minor risk 
and it has been patched by Trezor at this point. Yeah, exactly. Again, so not, nothing for the consumer to worry about. So moving on to issue number three, side channel attack pin. Yeah, that's... I mean, the side channel attack is really interesting one, and it, it's actually can be used in many kind of scenarios, not only crypto wallets and so on. And uh, the thing can be simply explained as in sniffing the power line of a processor, for example, and when you put in the right pin, then the processor does a little bit more because the processor is decrypting something correctly. And then if you see the power usage going up, you say, okay, now I have the correct number. It's exactly the same if you would pick the lock and if you if you concentrate on one pin and then try to turn the lock and you see that with certain height of this pin, the lock goes a little bit more to the right, you know that this pin is probably correct. And this is a side channel attack uh, on power usage of the CPU in this example. Um, again, you have to physically have the device on your desk. You have to have oscilloscope, at least. You have to have quite good knowledge of electronics. And you have to understand that the device itself. And there we have a couple of issues, again, that relate to open source. Why? Because you know exactly the procedure the device is doing when checking the pin, for example. So you know exactly what's happening, how, when, which algorithms, which cryptographic um, ways are used to decrypt the data. And then you can, of course, with all this knowledge, relate to what processor will do, what RAM will do, how these signals will interact and everything else. Um, I'll put it like that. Uh, it would be really, well, with our device, that would not even be possible because we don't store the pin. You cannot compare it because we don't compare it. That's it. So side channel attack is only physically possible if you have the device in your hand and if the device itself does compare the password, the PIN, whatever, to password and PIN stored into the, in the device itself. This is something you can only pull off in such kind of scenario. So again, to me, as the average user, it feels very technical, very NSA style. I have to have specialized equipment, even if it's basic uh, specialized equipment, it requires open source for me to know exactly what the device is doing so in trezor's case yes it's a risk but i get and you actually need to have physical access to the device but it's so it's a small risk for them and let's say for the bc vault it's a, not a risk at all because you guys aren't open source you don't compare the pin all right exactly so uh also the trezor mitigated that with the usage of passphrase and now you know why bc vault has passphrase and pin from the start <laughs> so uh, because you have to put something in on the computer and then you have to put something in on the device and when you do whatever compare with that which we don't do by the way bc world doesn't do that uh you are you cannot know which part is wrong or which part is right 
So it, it really complicates things. And this is also what actually Trezor responded with. So they said, look, this is not a problem if you use the passphrase too. And then again, we come to the user. So if the user would be, let's put it like stupid enough not to use long passphrase, not to use it maybe at all, just one character or whatever, and use a really short pin, this would be quite easy for a person with right knowledge, right equipment, and again, with physical access to the device. Yeah, so again, small risk for the individual, yet it is a risk that people have to take into account. So use a strong password, passphrases, guys. Use the pin on the device so you have both. And uh, make sure you store your device securely and back it up. Um, so issue number four, side channel attack scalar multiplication. I, to be honest, when I was watching the video, I did not understand any of this. And what the only thing I did understand was that to actually use this, didn't you actually need to have the pin already? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's exactly the point. Uh, I mean, you have to have the pin. <laughs> you have to have the physical device. And uh, uh, as I said, eventually the passphrase. So uh, when you have everything, uh, you have everything. So... If, if you have the pin, you have the device, you have the passphrase, or you're holding the gun to, to, to somebody's head and ask him to do the transaction, I mean, game over. So why care? Yeah, it, it, it's pointless if you already have access to it, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have everything. You can compare that to giving the keys to your house to somebody, but leaving the alarm system on. So if you have the keys and you can open the house and everything else, how much easier for you it is to disable the alarm system. It's much, much easier because you, you obviously can take your time. You, you look for the sensors. You can, if you trigger a false alarm, you can call the owner and say, oh, you know, I forgot to disable, uh, to, to switch off the alarm or whatever. So if, if, you, if somebody has your physical device with your pin, then obviously, again, you failed as a user to keep things secure. That's it. I mean, that's it. And if you live in Cyprus, and even if you have a security alarm and someone has come into your house, none of your neighbors will care. And if it's not connected to a security company, no one will come. The alarm will just keep going and then it'll stop after the uh, time frame where it stops and then your house and all your belongings are gone. Uh, so, usual. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, issue number five. Number six. This, I believe, was the issue that um, Ledger didn't actually reveal. That they yep. said it's a problem. What, what did they mean by that? Is it something that all uh, hardware wallets in the market have? Because uh, Trezor is saying that Ledger would also have this problem. What's the case with this one? Well, we have to do a little bit of the guessing here because obviously it was not revealed. But once you start talk about the the, the MCU, which means microcontroller unit which is a processor for the crypto wallet, and you talk about vulnerability around the microcontroller, usually this means that you somehow can dump uh, RAM or firmware or something like that. Um, because you can imagine that if you have stuff encrypted in RAM, in microcontroller, whatever, and it's, it is still encrypted. 
you don't really care if somebody dumps it because if it's encrypted properly, it shouldn't be decryptable, right? You cannot br brute force uh, elliptic curve encryption right now because if you can do that, you can obviously break into any crypto wallet. Uh, I mean, every single cryptocurrency right now uses, pro well, not every single, but most use elliptic curves algorithms. So data is encrypted anyhow, should be, right? And if you force the microcontroller to somehow give up the data that it shouldn't give up, or you do something like glitching, or you, uh, what's glitching, right? Glitching was used to hack Xbox, Microsoft Xbox. So what you basically do is you, you gain access to the microcontroller boot procedure or firmware loading, and you make it load your own code. And with this own code, you normally dump the existing firmware, change it, and then load it back again to do stuff that you want. But again, we are, we are talking about physical access. You have to have device in front of you. You have to play around with signals on microcontrollers and do stuff. And there we have actually two different branches. Trezor just has microcontroller. That's it. I mean, the whole storage is in the microcontroller. Done. Where Ledger and BC Vault have microcontroller plus a storage unit. But with Ledger, that's a secure chip. They are so proud of, about this secure chip. And with BC Vault, this is FRAM, for example. So that's the difference. Meaning, since Trezor has to store firmware and data in the microcontroller itself, they had an issue before where when you did a firmware upgrade, you could dump old seed words in clear text because they had to unlock the storage, upgrade the firmware, and, well, encrypt it again or lock it again. Uh, where Ledger or BC Vault don't have to do that because the microcontroller firmware is, is completely separate from the data itself. So the data is sitting somewhere else and the data is not even touched when you do the firmware upgrade because you don't care about the data. You just care about firmware. So in this case, it, even though it's a very technical process to actually do it, the risk for Trezor is higher compared to other hardware wallets in the market like yourselves, the VC Vault or Ledger that store data and the firmware separately. Yeah, I mean, this by itself imposes additional problems for them because they have to take care to properly handle all the data which is stored in microcontroller uh, um, flash storage uh, where Trezor and BC Vault, for example, don't have to do that because this is somewhere else. So they have this additional implication of taking care not to mess it up or as it was, I, I think it was a month ago, right? When uh, Wallet Speaker Fail did the presentation and they actually um, dumped the seed words from Tesor uh, as a consequence that they had to deal with this encrypted data also when the firmware upgrade was happening. Yeah, so you're right.
So in terms of a risk factor, Ledger was able to do this. They didn't reveal how. Is it appropriate for our listeners to take it as a, a minor risk that, again, involves to have actual physical access to the device? Yeah, I mean, all the exploits shown right in like last three months or uh, two months that happened with either Trezor or Ledger, they were all related to on-site hacking, meaning you have to have physical access to the device. And if you look at the risk itself, the risk calculation is always the multiplication of how likely it is to happen with how severe the consequence is. The consequence is. So if you look at the risk calculation itself, the likeliness of somebody getting hard, uh, um, physical access to your crypto wallet is, if you are careful, well, not likely or really unlikely if you take care, uh, specifically with the amount of money being on the device itself. So if you would have a crypto wallet which would hold uh, $1 million, would you take care about it or would you like throw it on your desk and leave it there and use it for everyday life? You probably would not. So the likelihood of somebody I mean, somebody specifically that wants to get a hold of your wallet to get the physical access to your wallet is not very likely. So the risk calculation will be quite low. But if you compare that with what happened before, uh, you know, Ledger, for example, uses Chrome plugin for doing stuff. So Ledger Live still doesn't support most of operations with most of coins. So you have to use Ledger Chrome plugin. And I can exploit that remotely. So this is much, much higher risk than anything mentioned here. Because you get malware on your desktop. This malware can do stuff with software and easily do stuff with software running in browser. It's a JavaScript. You can inject something into JavaScript. You can do stuff with it. You can change amount. You can change wallet addresses. You can do whatever you want. And again, if user is not careful, he might confirm the transactions with wrong data. And this is doable. I mean, all you need is control of the desktop. And that's it. No remote access, no nothing, nada, zero to the device itself. So there are much, much, much more uh, higher risk things out there that users should care about than what was mentioned right now. Thank you, Alan, for explaining all that and letting our users sleep well at night now. I'm sure as many have lost sleep over it, especially those with a lot stored in their cryptocurrency wallets. And now we just gotta wait for Trezor to reveal the uh, possibility of a risk on Ledger's um, hardware wallet using the plugin on Chrome, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, that has been done already. So um, you see, that's it, it's what goes around comes around, <laughs> right? Yeah. So exactly. uh, they will probably respond somehow in the direction of giving back what they've got. And this is why such things actually just do us 
a really bad favor because users are again in dilemma. Is it safe? It's not safe. What's happening? They don't understand. Crypto by itself is really, really complicated. And any any such kind of scenarios that just happen just introduces this additional subconscious fear of crypto to the end user. So at the end, I mean, exposing vulnerabilities, talking about them, fixing the gap, that's really good, but not in such kind of way. Yeah, because it, it's just causing problems. And the end user, as I said, and the reason we're doing this podcast is most people don't actually know what the risk factor of these are because Ledger, I think they kind of did it on purpose. I don't know. I'm not saying they did. Maybe um, the way he explained the risk factors, they didn't say, oh, this is a minuscule risk which needs specialized equipment, which needs actual physical access to the device. They just, these are the risk guys kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so they could have taken a better approach on that respect. One of the other issues that comes up um, in my mind at the moment is, We've talked about physical access to the device. Ledger is now releasing the Ledger Nano X, which is going to have Bluetooth capabilities. So that's a whole different ballgame in terms of having access to the device because I don't need actual physical access to the device. I can be within proximity of the device and still have that Bluetooth capability there. Is that something that could potentially be exploitable? I mean, any kind of connection possibility introduces new vectors. So, uh, yeah, for sure, that's a new possible vector. It's a new door you have to take care about. Um, for sure, they're encrypting the communication that goes through Bluetooth uh, between the desktop and the device itself or the, the phone. But then again, what you introduce, uh, on the other hand, is what happens if you have exploitable phone. So you see, that's not one vector. Now you have two because you introduce Bluetooth. So, okay, there might be problem with Bluetooth. We will not know until it happens because even problems even happen with, with hardware, as you saw with, for example, Intel. They had a problem in the CPU. I mean, that was going up all the levels up to the software where it could be exploited. So you have Bluetooth, but who are you communicating with Bluetooth? So you're communicating now with your smartphone. Go look how much problems happen with Android. Well, a little bit probably also on iOS, but mostly on Android phones. So I root your phone. I have complete control on your phone. I get access to whatever ledger application with, that is preparing uh, transaction data. I do man-in-the-middle attack. I change the address where the funds should go. Then again, the user is not careful and he, she confirms the transaction on the ledger. And voila, you, you just introduced a new attack vector. Because I'll give you a really, really good example. When Xbox was hacked, I mean, the Xbox 360. Hackers really had big problems. They didn't know how to do it. Microsoft even uh, introduced uh, hardware safety switches in the chip itself. I mean, you can physically burn the switch for a purpose. Like, you, you burn the fuse and Microsoft can detect that forever, right? So, you must ask yourself, what did the hackers want to do? They ultimately 
wanted to play backup games, right? And they asked themselves, why would we attack the Xbox, which really has all these amazing security features, where we can just make the DVD player report proper bytes of the DVD rat? And this is exactly why they did. They switched out the firmware of the DVD unit to report back to the Xbox whatever it should report. See? So every single security aspect in the Xbox was useless. And this is, this is what hackers do. They go for the easiest way. Why would I bother if I can attack the user at the most vulnerable point? And this is the desktop. And now you're introducing the phone. Yeah, why, why go all complicated with um, NSA-style equipment when you can ba yeah, basically I mean, do your thing with uh, the end user and their smartphone? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's equipment out there for $10,000 that enables you to put up GSM-compatible tower, cell tower, that fakes the, the real one. You can listen in on calls, you can sniff the data, you can do whatever you want. I mean, that's, that's available for $10,000, but do you really bother? I mean, do, are you afraid of that? Is that a risk for you? How, how much risk does this pose to you specifically? I mean, if you do the risk calculation, you have to decide for yourself if that's a calculated risk or not. And if it is, you obviously gonna buy a hardware encrypted phone that completely encrypts the data and stuff. And this is why what politicians or governments usually use. Because if a contra... Uh, intelligence agency would sniff out uh, what they are talking about with the hardware encryption on the device itself, you can mitigate that. But how many people do you know that are buying such kind of devices? Well, obviously, they are just, they, it's not risk for them. And this is exactly the scenario. The user should take big care of his desktop, her desktop, uh, phone, environment, use long passwords, use long pins, and that will do for 99% of users. Because all these hardware exploits, yes, they are possible, they can be done, but is this really something you are afraid of? So you have to ask that yourself every time. Yeah, guys, so you heard it from the security expert himself. Use long passphrases, use long pins, store the device securely, don't let people have access to the physical device itself. Device itself is secure by the company, the major risk is you. Alan, thank you for coming on the show and explaining that all these risks are minor and then users should not be worried about them. Do you have anything else to tell our listeners? Uh, thank you. Uh, I just want to say to all the people out there, don't, uh, don't be afraid of crypto. Uh, do involve some time in studying how everything operates. Do get knowledge about what a private key is and how it's used and what actually crypto wallet does for you. And it will be really good knowledge for you in the long term because obviously crypto is not going away. So the sooner you get in trained, the easier for you. And don't forget to go and check out the BC Vault. It's made by Alan's company, Real Security. We've just released a podcast on it and a review. Go check those out. They will be out on Monday. So go check that out. And if you're in the market to buy a hardware wallet, in our opinion, it's one of the best ones you could buy at the moment. So definitely worth having a look at. Thank you, Alan, for coming on the show and taking the time to speak with us. 
Thank you.